0: Hey everyone, this is Angela Johnson, and you're listening to the Warrior Razor Podcast. Let's be honest, raising the next generation is challenging, but we don't have to do it alone. I love connecting the Bible with the reality of our everyday life. I am so excited to have you, my fellow Warrior Razors, with me on this journey. So let's get started learning and sharing together. Welcome to the latest episode. And today we're going to pick up with our teaching on biblical warrior razors. Last time I gave a lesson, it was on the two midwives, Shifra and Pua. And I thought, you know, I wanted to continue that story with Jacobed. Now I will be honest, there are like three different ways you can pronounce her name, Jacobed, Yochebed, but I think we're going to go with Jacobed. And I have talked to two of my friends who are Jewish and her husband speaks uh, knows Hebrew so he he kind of gave me the go ahead with that that version of pronunciation but either way if you look at the meaning of her name they all mean Yahweh is glory or Jehovah is glorious or the Lord is glory and i just think that's a beautiful way to begin the story with knowing that long before her son had an encounter with Yahweh or Jehovah in the burning bush moment, she was known as Jehovah is glory. And you guys know how much I love the, the meanings of names. So the first time I actually ever heard of her was the classic 1956 movie, the 10 commandments with Charlton Heston. She had a minor role in that movie and then, because I am a generation Xer, Gen Xer, I watched that 1990s animated film, "The Prince of Egypt," and I think I found the DVD at Goodwill or something, and so my kids watch it in the van as we're driving here, there, and everywhere. But there's a scene in that where Sandra Bullock's character she plays Miriam, and she tells Moses, "You were born of my mother Yohebed," and so I always remembered hearing that name and i thought you know i want to look up her story a little bit more in detail and so when i was researching for the midwives I thought this is this is just makes sense to continue on with Yaakov's story. So we know that her name is Yahweh's glory, and I'm going to pick up this story in Exodus two and just read a little bit for you guys, and then we're going to do some breakouts and just kind of do the deep dive like we do, and hopefully you'll walk away with an applicable lesson for today and know that her legacy of faith and courage and trust. something that we can we can learn from and she is a wonderful example of a a warrior razor woman a warrior razor mama so she is she's found in exodus 2 that's the first time we hear of her story but her name is not mentioned until later that exodus 6 is the first time we're given her name but i'm going to start reading in exodus 2 beginning in 1 now a man of the house of levi married a daughter of levi and if you parallel over to Exodus 6, it actually, whenever it gives her name, it says, and Amram married his father's sister, Jochebed and she bore him Aaron and Moses. So yeah, side note, Amram married his, his aunt. And I know that might seem super strange to us today, but marrying one's aunt or niece back then was not unlawful. Not until after actually Moses was given the law Uh, It was kind of a customary thing to do back then. So then in verse 2, it says, And she conceived and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. So I want to break apart break this part of the scripture where it says he was a beautiful child. In three different places, it mentions this. It actually pulls this phraseology out when it retells the story of Jacob and Moses and his birth. In Exodus 2, 2, Acts 7, 20, and in Hebrews eleven twenty three. And that word in Hebrew is tobe, and it means pleasant, agreeable, or good and in fact it is the same word god used when he looked over all of creation and he said it was good it was beautiful it was pleasant it was it was beautiful and good so this is the same word that is used to describe when jacobet looks down on her newborn baby and she sees that he is good and so there is some contra- uh, conversation around the fact that maybe when she saw him she had this divine knowing that he was something special he was set apart for a higher calling but then in hebrews 11:23 it says by faith the second part of that, that verse where they see that he's good and then he, they hide him for three months. And then if you look in Hebrews eleven twenty three, it says, by faith, Moses's parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So if you don't listen to the message on Shifra, Shifra and Puah, just to give you a brief synopsis, synopsis the Israelites were growing exponentially the pharaoh at the time was getting very up very upset and very worried that his kingdom was being threatened because he's 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 feeling like their their vast numbers were going to be a threat to his dynasty so what he then does is makes this edict that any hebrew baby born baby boy born must be killed and oftentimes that would be just a gruesome murder or throwing them into the nearby nile so this edict is in place at the time of Moses's birth. And if you we do some backlogging, she has two children prior. So Miriam is the oldest and we'll talk about her a little bit more, but they think that she's around anywhere from 9 to 14. So she's she's a if you want to put it in today's context a school-aged child. Um, and then Aaron is about three years old. They have kind of guesstimated or put kind of an earmark on that age for him. so this edict comes out and she 's probably super pregnant, and they don't know whether it's a boy or a girl at that time, so she's just not knowing at the time of his birth until the midwives or until if she delivers him on her own whether he's going to be a boy or a girl. So when he's born, she looks on him, sees that he is is good, beautiful, agreeable, pleasing and and there's something that is not Uh, or there's something not ordinary about him. So it says that they were not afraid of the King's edict. And that's why they chose to, to hide him for three months. And for those of us that have small children or have have children, we know that, Hiding a three-month-old is not an easy task because you have to remember that the Egyptians at that time were mixed up with those Israelites. They were living in the land of Goshen. You can go back and read in Genesis how the, how the Israelites settled in Goshen but they were, they were still living amongst the Egyptian people, the Egyptian natives, so that each Hebrew household would have been subjected to you know, espionage, them breaking in, checking the scene out at the time of this, this edict being issued. So it really required all of these Israelite parents on the to the pain of their own death, to decide to give up their own male children and that they might be thrown into the river. So that's, that's oftentimes what happened because they, they, it was either them or, or their babies. So she decides to hide them, she and her husband. It says that the two parents together. It doesn't go into detail about Amram much. We're just mostly told about Jacob's point of view. So she know when she can no longer hide him verse 3 it picks up it says she got him a papyrus basket and coated it with tar and pitch Now, I know if you do watch The Prince of Egypt, they have this scene where he's in the Nile River, and there's this current that takes him away, and and the animals are going after him, and there's crocodiles going after him, and it's just like this kind of violent scenario, and there were were those very things in, in the Nile River, and so... But that I don't think is the case with what happened to Moses because it talks about what she put him in this papyrus basket. Well, first of all, let's back up and look at what papyrus was. It was a plant in Egypt, very common. It was a a plant that they commonly used for boats or even larger vessels. I know today we kind of put in our minds that it's used for, they made it for paper. Well, that's yes, they did, but they also would use it to make boats or large sea vessels. And this word for basket is the Hebrew word Teba. And it's the same word used for Noah's Ark, it is found nowhere else. They don't use this word anywhere else in Scripture except to describe Noah's Ark. So, Jacobed, she probably knew the story of Noah and his Ark, and that that story was very common among the Hebrews. So, she she was part of that audience, and so she she surely knew the account. And so, what does she do? She uses that tar and that pitch to to line the basket, to coat the basket, and she waterproofs it. and, and she puts them in this little tiny papyrus basket boat, so to speak. The Egyptian word for this basket word is is, is translated as a coffin. And so I know it's kind of a morbid look at this, but it wasn't this open basket that we often think of. I know that Moms today can get Moses baskets to put by their bedside or on their bed when they've got their newborn infant because, you know, babies don't roll around when they're brand new. So you can kind of set them in the basket, but it's an open lid or there is no lid. But this would have had a lid to it, and that's why they use that word coffin to describe what this basket was. So she coats it, she lines it, she waterproofs it. She was doing everything in her earthly power to preserve his life and to keep him from the elements and keep him safe. So she knows the story of Noah's Ark. She u- models the same method to preserve this tiny papyrus boat basket and, uh, or this little baby ark so to speak. And so just 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 like God kept humanity alive with Noah and his family, this little tiny baby ark was put together to protect this baby who would also be a promise for their future and to lead them out of captivity and slavery. So that's kind of a beautiful poetic look at this story. One that I I often haven't, I've not looked at before until I started doing some research for this lesson. So she places him and then it goes on, says that she placed a child in the basket or this little tiny papyrus baby ark and set it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So here go, here then goes this contradictory image that we have often portrayed in movies about this open basket floating in this rushing current of a Nile. No, she sets him along the bank in the reeds of the Nile. And when you look up the history, there was a ton of aquatic vegetation. I mean, just think of like any marsh or any, any river bank. There's plant life that grows all along the outer portion of it. and Jacob, she places him among the reeds, reeds is what it's translated. So the ark, this little baby ark would not float away down the river. So it would not be lost. In fact, some have written when you read about some of these commentaries that she was placing him there covered, protected by the elements so she could leave her home, be safe there, and then come feed him, care for him. Come back home. And it was this it was a safety place where he, she kept some have thought that she kept him there for longer than that day that some of us think she brings him and he, he's rescued from that space. But uh, I, I thought that was an interesting take on the scripture as well. But where he is placed, it's this phrase typically translated in English as the Red Sea. But in literally in Hebrew, this is the Sea of Reeds. And this is probably a narrower inlet. So when we think about later when Moses leads the people through the Red Sea, this is the same body of water that he would then eventually lead his people through. So he's, he's, placed into this Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And eventually he'll lead his people through the same space um, many, many years later. So then verse four picks up. It says a sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So not only do you have Jacob his mother as a mighty warrior who is just doing all that she could to preserve the life of this baby, but she now employs her daughter to help her brother in this process too. So some have said that maybe Jacob was unable herself to go because of just the agony that it would have been for her to watch the, what could happen, what would happen to him, or that she was not as easy uh, as easily able to hide among the reeds on the riverbank. But according to some sources, you know, they put her Miriam, the daughter around seven, nine, some is even high as 14. And I think that she had to have been a little older because she possesses this quickness of thought, this quickness of intelligence is, uh, this quickness of speech and she's not as fearful. So she's probably not too old because she still has some of that brazenness that you get in your youthfulness that we have as we're younger, you know, the fearlessness, uh, when it comes to authority. (laughs) But so I think she's probably around that, um, seven, eight, nine year old, your age, maybe 14. So then it picks up in verse five, soon the daughter of Pharaoh. So this is a princess, right? Um, Eventually, she's identified as Queen Bithia, but she goes down to bathe in the Nile and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. So this is not an unusual occurrence. In fact, Jacob probably knew about it because women were allowed a lot of liberty in Egypt at that time, uh, Egyptian women. And they moved about pretty much as they pleased. And cleanliness was especially regarded in their culture. And so this specifically the Nile was considered healthy and in a clean place to bathe. So she goes down, this princess would, of course, she'd find part of a river, this, the river that was reserved for females where there would be privacy. And so I think Jacobet knew that this is where she could safely put, put her son and that um, it was not going to be a, an area overrun with too much wildlife if the Egyptian people were regularly, the princesses were regularly going down there to bathe. So then it goes on. It says when this princess uh, sees, she the, when she saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her maidservant to retrieve it. So Moses is drawn out of the reeds in the Nile and is rescued. And then years later, like I mentioned, he's going to lead his people to safety from the Egyptians through the sea of reeds to their rescue. That's in Exodus 14, if you want to read that later. So verse six, when she opened up the Little ark basket. She saw the child, and behold, the little boy was crying. Well, heck yeah, he was crying. He's laying in there. It's probably not too comfortable. It's probably cold or I don't know, he's laying on tar-covered reeds, and he's probably hungry and wet, and because he probably had they didn't have diapers, pampers, or huggies back then. So he's just he's a baby. He's three months old, right? Think of a little three-month-old inside of that basket. So he's crying and as most women would, she sees him. And so it says, so she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. So instantly, let's pick this apart. She has compassion on him. These, the baby's tears moves her heart to pity. And this pity prompts her to pick him out and rescue him. She, no, she could have looked down there and knowing that this was a Hebrew baby and could have followed her father's edict and said, you know, no, I'm not going to disobey my father's order. But she she was moved with compassion and rescues him and saves him. And sometimes I think we can look the other way and feel overwhelmed and helpless when we hear these reports of injustices or things that are going around on around us. But when you, when it's right there in your face, in your, in your own world surrounding environment, it's very difficult to ignore it. And she really could not ignore the cries of this baby. And the reason why she knew it was a Hebrew is because remember he, he, was good. He was pleasing to the eye and he was health Other versions translated as healthy. So no other mother would have discarded a healthy baby unless it was because of some imminent demise or danger or because of this edict. So she puts two and two together and she realizes that these circumstances basically speak for themselves. No mother would have exposed this goodly, healthy uh, baby to such a sad death if if it wasn't a necessity for her. So verse 7 says then his sister Miriam remember she's down there keeping an eye on things says to the pharaoh's daughter shall i go and call one of the hebrew women to nurse the child for you. So wet nursing has been around for a long time so i always i was bring this part up when i talked to the new moms for the first time it's like you know, bottle, breast, there's controversy around it all, and you're gonna get opinions from everybody. But at the end of the day, people have been getting help with feeding their babies from the dawn of time. So Miriam speaks up. And so I I think that she was kind of this adolescent age because she was not afraid of what would happen so she just had some had some crazy boldness to her and so verse 8 the pharaoh's daughter says go ahead and the girl went and called the boy's mother so some people have said that Yacobed was probably very nearby and so to go get her wasn't a very long drawn out process but uh, so she comes and and Yakubed comes the so pharaoh's daughter says to her take this child and nurse him for me and i will pay your wages. So when she says nurse it for me, this the princess in that moment knew that she was going to adopt this ideology that Miriam had given her or that Miriam had suggested that the child would be nursed for her. So that she's going to keep this baby now and he's to be hers. So she places it out to to be nursed, which is a very customary thing to do, and she pays Jacob had the customary wages to wet nurse him so that in and of itself so now she gets her own baby back and she's able to receive compensation to have him with her until the point of him being weaned so the woman took the boy and nursed him it says continuing on in verse 9 so when I take pause here, I like to think about the special time that Yacobed was given this gracious time that the Lord gave her with her baby. Because when you think about nursing, they didn't have formula back then. They didn't have any other means for feeding babies back then, except for nursing. So, in that moment when she does have them there, at, have him at her at her breast and feeding him, there is that physical, that emotional bond that occurs between mother and baby. And I bet she was singing songs over him. She was telling him stories. She was just flooding him with the history and, the, and who he was and who he in prayers. Oh, gosh, she was probably singing prayers just constantly every time she had him with her because she knew it was for a finite emotion. Amount of time. So she gave him up once to the river and then she gets him back and then she knows she's going to have to give him up again. I mean, what amazing, selfless sacrifice that this woman just embodies. So not so she's tending to his physical needs but she's she's bringing this emotional and spiritual component into my mind just likes to wander and I like to think about you know I nursed all three of my children and I know not everyone has that capacity or the desire to do that but in those moments in the, in the still quietness of the night or those early morning hours where I was so tired but it was just me and my baby and their little hands reach up and they grab your chin or they caress your chest and even when you bottle Feed. they do that too. They still have these same mannerisms. There's something just so bonding and so special. And that's the moment that Jacoby was probably just soaking that in and just pouring out everything that she had or that she could all over this little life that she was caring for in that moment for just this this finite amount of time. So it goes on. um, Actually, I pulled some data from the Talmud, which is the Jewish the Jewish um, documents, that talk about this, the importance of breastfeeding, the mother is considered a miniket or a nursing mom until her child reaches twenty four months. So sometimes they say he was probably returned at two years, but even if a baby was weaned, he or she could return to nurse at any time until the age of two. So that was the the designated time frame of. Uh, allotted at a minimum to nurse, but between the ages of two and four years, or even five, if the baby was unhealthy. So, if the baby was healthy, they were allowed to nurse longer. A child who was weaned for longer than seventy-two hours may not return to the breast. And at age five, he was considered. It was considered the upper limit for nursing in Jewish law. And this is also a little fun fact. The mother is, was advised to begin nursing on the left side because that was closest to her heart or close to the heart. So I just thought that was a little neat little tidbit to, when it comes to the nursing or the the time frame. So then it goes on in verse 10. It says, when the child had grown older. So, Most historians say that at a minimum, he was two years of age because that was the the lower limit for weaning a baby. So she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter. I kind of think maybe she was like, oh, I need to keep him a little bit longer because wouldn't you want to just like squeeze every last ounce of of time that you would have with this baby if you knew that you were going to have to hand him back over again? So anywhere between two and five, right? So she names him Moses, the Pharaoh's daughter does, and explains that she drew him out of the water. And again, we see this beautiful artistry with the naming of this boy. And there was actually a bilingual wordplay here because both in Hebrew and Egyptian, it means to draw out of the water. So when we go back to the story and we look at Jochebed this woman had to give up her son twice. In order to save him, she had to release him not only did she have to give him away, but she had to give him to a group of people that didn't even want him to be born, that didn't even value his life. But she will be forever remembered for her children. And yes, more than that, she'll be remembered for her courage, her faith, her trust. And it was her love that saved her child from such a cruel death and preserved him to eventually bless the entire world. And I think about how her story applies to our our modern day lives, and even to the point that if God asks us to hold uh, to give up something we hold dear, we just have to trust him and release it and if we hold too tightly to something, if we white knuckle something so tightly because we, we, we need it or we have to have it or we think we, we cannot live without it, we will never have an open hand to receive anything else. But the other part about her story is if she had held on to him for longer than three months because she just could not part with him, it not only would have put his life at risk, but it would have killed their entire family and their entire legacy could have been killed off. So it was so much more than keeping Moses safe for herself. By him growing up in the palace, I just think about God's divine intervention that even evil things. We've talked about this before in the podcast. This world is ugly, sin-filled, and filled with evil. There's a lot of good, but there's still an an inherent amount of of evilness that is surrounding us, surrounding our children, surrounding our environment, The, the news, the media, awful, awful stuff is going on. But God can even take that stuff and redeem it, for his glory. Because he had given a covenant to the people that his the legacy would be multiplied, grains of sand, stars in the sky. So there, there was some crazy steps that happened within Moses' story that would preserve the covenant legacy. So it was so much more than keeping Moses alive for herself. So when... When Before he ever went to redeem these people from slavery, Moses to lead these people from Egyptian bondage, if you think that this same boy was raised in an Egyptian palace, like the Egyptian royalty, he was educated, he knew the ways, he knew the Egyptian customs, he knew the religious thoughts on things. So who better of an advocate than Moses, who was trained... In an Egyptian palace, but born of a Hebrew, but born of a Hebrew mother who had lavished prayers over him and lavished love on him from the moment that he was within her womb, and then to have this burning bush moment with with God, eighty years later, and God calls him to be the one to pull the people, his chosen people, from slavery. Moses doubted himself because he had been so far removed from that. He doubted his calling, but he was perfectly equipped to be the one that God would empower to take on that task and save the people from captivity. So, Jacob's courage and faith is such a beautiful and true example of what being a warrior raiser is. She could not see the outcome of her actions guarantee she did not make it to see him bring the people from captivity. She probably never walked through the Red Sea on dry ground with her son leading the people ahead of them, holding his staff upright. But God knew. God knew that her heroic actions were so much more than just keeping him alive. So if God's asking you to step out, be courageous, or to trust him with something that is so beyond your own capacity, let this story, let Jacob's story remind you of his faithfulness. This testimony, her testimony of faithful mothering, it's just beautiful evidence of the fruit of her legacy. Because something so sad, like giving up her baby, it, it is. It's heart-wrenching. She didn't want it. She didn't, she didn't will it, but she did it. She gave him up, and that was part of God's sovereign plan. Moses became one of the greatest national leaders, legislators, and prophets that the world has ever known. Beyond Moses, Aaron, her, son, her middle son, he became Israel's first high priest and the founder of the Aaronic priesthood, I mean, we're talking about a mighty legacy. And let's not forget Miriam. She was a poetess. She was the first one that ever, there's ever recorded poetry in the Bible. It was from her. She was a musician and she was a prophetess. So there is just a beautiful legacy. And she, and and Miriam is right there alongside her brothers when we think of the the leadership of the Israelite nation with her two brothers. So I I just love this story. I think it's just a, a beautiful reminder of steadfast courage and faithfulness that we can't hold on to something so tightly if we know that there is a greater good that can come from it for ourselves or for others because we don't know what that releasing will do what it will do for us and what it will do for others in our sphere of influence or even down the line that we might never see the fruit of that action for so be encouraged remember Jochebed's story Jacobed, Yohebed, however you want to say her but to remember that Yahweh is glorious and Yahweh, God, Jehovah, the Lord received glory through her story. So thanks for listening and to all of my fellow warrior razors, aim your arrows well.